give the people what they want from People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. I'm Prashant from People's Dispatch. I'm Zoe from People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter, coming to you live every Friday from the People's Dispatch Facebook page and later as a podcast. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Okay, it's, um, well, it must be Friday and fortunately it's not April 1st. Because that would have been the opportunity for us to say it's our last show and we shall not be returning. But since it's April 2nd of 2021 and since you're watching Give the People What They Want with Zoe and Prashant from People's Dispatch and me Vijay from Globetrotter, since it's April 2nd, there's no opportunity to play an April Fool's joke with you. Um, We're back. Your favorite global half an hour news program tell us how much you love us because we have very very fragile egos zoe of course is in ecuador she is there covering the election the second round of the elections let's go straight to zoe quito ecuador beautiful beautiful part of the world what did your taxi driver from the airport to the home where you're living tell you zoe give us the latest Yes. Well, I arrived yesterday in Quito. Very happy to be here. Very excited to cover um, the upcoming elections and also just generally the crisis that has been going on in Ecuador for the last couple of years. Um, The thing that probably most struck me from my conversation with uh, the taxi driver, um, we mostly focused on the conversation about COVID-19. So while in, you know, the imperialist core in the global north, We've seen, in some respect, maybe a a decrease in numbers because of vaccination plans being rolled out. Um, In South America, this is not um, the tendency. This is not the trend that's happening right now. Um, I mean, we've talked a bunch about Brazil and the, you know, horrifying numbers there of increasing cases, increasing deaths. Um, In Ecuador, similarly, um, you know, of course, last year in March, Ecuador had one of the worst moments of the COVID-19 pandemic with the, you know, horrible outbreak in Guayaquil, people putting bodies on the streets, awful scene. Um, but right now, uh, the cases are rising. Um, there's, you know, restrictions being imposed on a lot of cities. And so above all, it doesn't, there's not really the same kind of environment or climate of kind of pre-elections here. It's not really felt on the street. Um, we Mostly with my cab driver, we were talking about kind of how COVID has impacted um, life. And, you know, this. I mean, right now we're also in Semana Santa, which is the Holy Week. So there's a really kind of massive decrease in mobilization and kind of just generally um, people being out. Um, what I can say is that yesterday, uh, two days ago, no, yesterday, sorry, um, a poll was the final day to release um, pre-elections polls. And uh, the poll by Omar Maluk was released. Um, he is a leftist kind of uh, political scientist and an analyst. Um, and he's released several polls throughout um, the electoral process. Um, and his latest one was released yesterday um, talking about intention of vote. And he also kind of released uh, a series of the numbers that he's observed over the past couple of months. And what he says uh, in this poll is that 
according to opinions right now, Andres Arauz, who again is the progressive candidate from the Union of Hope, um, related to, of course, Rafael Correa and the Citizens' Revolution. He, you know, served several positions in that government. He currently is polling at 53.8% and banker Guillermo Lasso is at 46.2%. So uh, it's close. There's also a very high index right now of um, calling for the blank vote, um, abstention. Um, we know Yaku Perez's party of Pachacuti. Um, a lot have been, there have been major calls for this. So right now, there's kind of a three-way division between Guillermo Lasso, Andres Arauz, and then also, you know, the voting in blank is getting a lot of, a lot of um, support, which is, I think, something that's concerning, not because, you know, they're not voting for Andres Arauz, they're not voting for Lasso, but why are people feeling disinvested in this political process, and why are they feeling like the only way they can express their political aspirations is through the uh, blank vote. So, you know, we'll be talking to um, different people over the upcoming days from the indigenous movement, um, you know, members of the assembly. We've also seen some, you know, last desperate attempts by outgoing President Lenny Moreno, who, just to add, has one of the worst approval ratings in history um, because of all of these horrible neoliberal reforms that he has implemented, his complete, you know, betrayal of the citizens' revolution. Uh, he's been trying to implement some last uh, desperate moves, you know, including the privatization of the central banks. So we'll be talking to some legislators as well to see how they've been resisting these moves by uh, Lenny Moreno to push through these reforms. And stay tuned. Uh, always follow People's Dispatch. We'll be updating from there uh, with some good reports, hopefully. It's a very important election, Zoe. Um, Andres Arauz, age 37, I believe. Uh, an economist trained at the National University in Mexico uh, in a tight race with Guillermo Lasso, businessman, um, you know, with a far-right agenda. I think there is, of course, a sense of, of both hope among a lot of people, but also disorientation. We're in the middle of a pandemic. It's disorienting. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Lots of people have shifted to buying their goods from platforms. Uh, we've seen during the course of this pandemic, owners of companies like Amazon making a enormous amount of money. Looks like now workers at Amazon from the United States into the heart of Europe and elsewhere, not going to take it any longer, Prashant. They're on strike. They're threatening a strike over Easter. What's going on with Amazon and the Amazon workers? Right. So it's actually quite a dynamic uh, moment as far as labor organizing in Amazon is concerned. In the United States, we saw, of course, the news from the Bessemer facility in uh, Alabama, where there was a vote over 5,800 ballots took place and the counting is going on. And this is a very important vote, of course, because uh, this could be a precedent for very similar unionization efforts. The vote was for, say, unionization efforts in that plant. And if this passes, this could have a domino effect, which is what a lot of observers are saying. And <clears throat> in the past few months have been really kind of crazy. We've seen Amazon pull out all stops, including some of the most weirdest stories about manipulating traffic lights or working towards that so that tra you know traffic lights are when union organizers get the opportunity to talk to uh, workers. And uh, Amazon has been apparently trying to manipulate that so there's less time 
So that is the extent of the campaign. They spend tens of thousands of dollars, if not more, on union-busting efforts. <clears throat> Recently, reports, of course, coming out that from 2018, Amazon has been uh, organizing a pro program called Veritas. I mean, believe Veritas means the truth, which uh, where they drafted employees to go out on social media, especially selected employees, and defend the company. And of course, a lot of these violations, I mean, this, this may not, of course, be a violation, but many other such uh, incidents taking place also in the context of horrifying reports about work conditions emerging in Amazon, workers not getting the chance to even go to the loo, uh, the insane workload that is taking place. And it's interesting because <clears throat> we recently talked to Giuliano, Giuliano Granato of Poterio Popolo in Italy. He was talking about the Amazon workers strike there on March 22nd, which is again a very historic strike. <clears throat> Mainly because of the fact that for the first time, both Amazon employees and Amazon, those who drove delivering Amazon packages, who were often employed by third parties, took part in the strike. And there was a moment, a pivotal moment of unity. And also showed, I think, a lot of promise in terms of organizing workers in this sector, which has really been quite difficult. And uh, Juliana was, of course, telling us about how uh, the strike was, of course, uneven, especially in the industrialized north. There was a lot of uh, support for the strike. The important thing to notice, notice that many of these drivers deliver close to 180 to 200 packages a day sometimes. That is the kind of load that is on them. And uh, last year, according to at least one academic study, Amazon grew by 31%. So, uh, the, it's not this often the strikes and protests are not even really about salaries because the key thing is work conditions here because Amazon has become such a bear mod. There's a huge amount of, uh, say, automation taking place. Workers are, you know, filling in the gaps, uh, you know, being put through huge amounts of stress. And they're, because there are no, there's no huge mass factory with tens of thousands of workers. Mobilizing and organizing can be difficult. And sometimes their concerns are not, not heard that often. We had the example of Chris Malls, who, were, who also raised many issues like this at the height of the pandemic in the United States and faced action as well. So... Uh, I think last one, two years, and especially since the pandemic began, there has been a great amount of attention paid to Amazon. We saw the campaign uh, by the progressive international and labor organizations across the world on this issue, of course. On March 29th in Germany, Amazon workers similarly took to protests. Again, protests were about the working conditions, about you know fixed contracts. So I think across the world, uh, there is a def huge amount of pushback that is taking place against Jeff Bezos and against Amazon, specifically demanding that the, the situation where workers are treated as machines or workers are treated as dispensable, uh, say, elements in the large production or large distribution process be put an end and there, there be the possibility of organizing and working for their rights. You know, it's a it's an ongoing story. It's Amazon, yes, but also it's workers in all platform industries. Um, you know, we we've been looking carefully at at Uber and Uber Eats, which delivers food to people's homes. Uh, many of these platforms, the workers' only income comes in tips, and um, this is of course not a guaranteed wage of any kind. You know, it's a very difficult situation. For a lot of people who have been forced into this kind of, of labor, um, you know, we're talking about uh, workers having a difficult time surviving. We're talking about an election in Ecuador. Meanwhile, of course, um, in Europe, there's an enormous amount of pressure being put on the Russia-Ukraine border. 
um, the uh, organization known as NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, last year um, released a report, a very considerable important report, uh, where they talked about the expansion of NATO. They imagine a NATO in the Middle East, a NATO in Asia and so on. But really the expansion of NATO of great consequence has been the expansion within Europe itself. People may know that when the Berlin Wall fell and as a, as a consequence of German reunification, the Russian government at the time made a deal with the United States saying NATO would stop at Russia's eastern border. NATO, of course, has moved further uh, eastward. And in this report came out last year, um, NATO talked about strengthening its opportunities in Ukraine and Georgia. Over the course of the last few days, there have been very disturbing developments on the, um, on the, the Ukraine-Russia border. Um, Russia had a military exercise uh, on its own soil, uh, not that close to the Ukraine border. NATO um, scrambled jets about 10 times to basically shadow the troop movements on the Russian side. Um, NATO's, foreign, uh, NATO's Secretary General made, I thought, quite peculiar comments about what's happening there. Um, and then, of course, just in late March, the uh, foreign ministers met in Brussels of the NATO countries. And again, Russia was much on the table. Well, there's now shooting at the Ukraine-Russia border. People have been killed. Um, this is a matter of great, great uh, concern. I think it's pretty important to recognize that this may not escalate out of control because I think both the Russians, the Ukrainians, and particularly the Germans don't want a conflict. Now, I want to put this on the table because the, uh, the situation behind this is the development of a pipeline that the Russians and the Nord Stream Consortium have been building to bypass Ukraine, go through the Baltic waters uh, from Russia into Germany. And just in this period of the military buildup, the Nord Stream Consortium has said they worry a lot about armed conflict in the Baltic region. They worry that the pipeline is going to be damaged. You know, this is not, um, this is not something that that I am just uh, speculating, or that they've just, you know, they've just speculated about. But Andrew Minin, who's a senior official at the Nord Stream 2 AG consortium, came out clearly and said that, you know, they feel that the fleet of the project that's building the pipeline is facing, and here's his direct quote. This is Andrew Minin said, we're facing regular provocations by the foreign civil and military vessels. When asked about this, U.S. Secretary um, of State, uh, Antony Blinken, he was asked about this on a television broadcast last Sunday. And he said, well, it's a responsibility of those who are building the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, whether they want to complete it or whether they want to uh, take a position, uh, whether they want to complete it despite opposition from Washington or do they want to give up? I mean, this is mafia tactics. And... It's got to be clear that the conflict on the Russia-Ukraine border is not really to do with the Crimea or the Donbass region where there is a conflict inside Ukraine. This has to do with Nord Stream 2 and the attempt by the United States to prevent the completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I'd like to have people look at this a little carefully 
Um, it's a very big story. It's hard to encapsulate this in a few minutes because it has a lot to do with the fact that Europe has been denied energy sources from Iran as a consequence of the nuclear you know, uh, um, sort of, I don't know, blockade of Iran. Uh, it, it has been denied energy from Libya as a consequence of NATO's war there and now denied from Russia. So Germany desperate to complete the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, the United States eager not to have this pipeline completed, and then you have military tension on the border. We're in a very difficult situation. I hope people are watching this carefully. You're listening to um, give the people what they want from People's Dispatch, from Globetrotter. You're watching us from China. You're watching us from Canada. You're watching us from India. You're watching us from Kenya. We're happy to have you. Border disputes, terrible things, very dangerous. There's a terrible border dispute ongoing now between Venezuela and Colombia. Uh, there had been a dispute between Venezuela and Guyana. Zoe, what's happening at that border? Well, thanks, Vijay. It's a very, it's a complicated uh, moment right now. The Venezuela and Colombia border is one of the hottest borders. It's one of the borders that's had, you know, historically a lot of conflict, um, both, you know, between uh, state actors, but also it's a heavy concentration of um, irregular armed groups. Um, this is one of the key kind of corridors um, towards the Caribbean. There's a lot of, uh, you know, illegal drug trafficking that happens in this area. There's a lot of uh, mining operations. So it's, a, it's one of the most militarized regions in Colombia. Um, and essentially right now there's been a dispute that's been going on because the Venezuelan um, FANBI, the um, Bolivarian National Forces of Venezuela, they have been, uh, they carried out an operation in the uh, state of Apure where uh, they claimed that there was an... Um, attacks coming from an irregular Colombian armed group. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, this has been, this area is constantly occupied by illegal armed groups. There's a lot of movement. The civilian population has been, you know, suffered greatly uh, over, you know, throughout, you know, history. Currently what's happening is that there was an operation that was carried out. Sorry, I think my internet is not super strong. Um, there was an operation that was carried out by, the, by Venezuela against these groups. And essentially, and in, these, in this confrontation, in this operation, uh, two uh, members of the Bolivarian Guard uh, were killed. There have been, you know, dozens injured. Um, but essentially, it's kind of opened up, not, an, not a closed wound by any, by any means, but tensions between Venezuela and Colombia. As we know, Colombia has been historically uh, the ally of the United States in pushing you know, an agenda of militarization and military operations against Venezuela. Ven Colombia is taking advantage of the operation of the Venezuelan army against this uh, irregular group to kind of reactivate its plan of aggression against Venezuela. Ivan Duque has given several declarations there's been a massive media campaign deployed um, on social media through WhatsApp groups, you know, saying that, you know, these soldiers of the dictatorship of Venezuela are attacking Colombian soil. I really recommend, we're going to be publishing a report on this at People's Dispatch, uh, Misión Verdad, 
um, the Corriente Revolucionario Bolivar y Zamora have also published kind of detailed accounts of what's happening because it's actually quite difficult to piece out what's happening, what have been the, what are the lies that have been, been spread, and kind of what's behind this operation. But I think beyond the specifics of this encounter in itself, we have to understand the geopolitical importance of this, the historical importance of this, and of course, above all, the impact on the civilian population, because anytime there's some sort of armed confrontation, um, the first to suffer, of course, are the civilian population. I think Venezuela has been trying to, you know, neutralize this threat that's been attacking them. Um, they've been met with, you know, massive um, attacks from the Colombian government. So it's a really complicated situation. I encourage people to follow it and try to piece out what's happening beyond this media manipulation that Colombia loves to do against Venezuela using words like the dictatorship. They're uh, attacking our country. And so it's, it's, it's quite dicey at the moment. You know, the interesting thing about give the people what they want is that we seem to report from all kinds of places uh, in the world. We run, um, you know, zigzags from Ecuador to, uh, you know, Europe to Nord Stream pipeline to back to the Venezuelan-Colombian border. Now we're going to go all the way out to the Philippines where, you know, it's been a long time since the Philippines has had a government of some sensible, uh, sensible nature. Uh, Prashant, what is happening in the Philippines and why is it that we keep reporting things of violence and so on? What, what's the underlying story here? Absolutely. Uh, Vijay, the, re the most latest peg, of course, is the fact that uh, three labor activists were uh, targeted. Two of them were arrested. One of them was declared at large. One was later released, of course. But this is part of a trend, like you said. This is not one incident we're talking about here. And just a few weeks ago, there was an event which is now is now known as Bloody Sunday, where nine people were killed, six were arrested. And similarly, all of these were people who human rights defenders, people fighting for the rights of uh, the oppressed. And basically, the Duterte regime has uh, clearly, it over the years, it's not, again, a new phenomenon. Over the years, it has been unleashing you know, a continuous wave of terror. There is this practice called red tagging, which is, I think, really needs to be uh, examined properly, really needs to be understood properly, where anyone and everyone who opposes the government, you know, who's speaking about rights is automatically uh, red tagged or identified with the banned Communist Party there. And uh, Duterte has been releasing, uh, say, you know, he has been making all kinds of speeches where he's been telling the army uh, regularly that, you know, go ahead, finish them off, kill all the communist insurgents in the country. And he's been making those kind of statements. And what has been happening is that it's not just the executive infrastructure, it's also the judiciary. So uh, during uh, March, in the beginning of March, during this whole Bloody Sunday issue, activists had pointed out that a lot of the warrants that are being issued against uh, you know, those fighting for justice, those fighting for rights, are basically copy-paste warrants. So there's just uh, one, uh, the just, there's just name and the address change and everything else remains the same. So this is kind of what has been happening in the Philippines continuously. And uh, we've we had incident after incident, farmers, leaders shot, uh, say university professors or universities red tagged again, accused of being involved with the Maoists. Last year, we saw that uh, there was an anti-terror law which was passed by the government massively criticized. There's a huge challenge that is being mounted in the Supreme Court right now. 
against this law where academics, activists, human rights organizations, all of them have come together to challenge it. But at its heart, it lies in the fact that the Philippine the government of Duterte has acted with immense impunity because we've also seen the so-called anti-drug operations. A clear parallel is there. So where in the name of anti-drug operations has been massive violence, innocent, huge number of innocents killed. And now the government has actually admitted that, that there have been lapses in procedure, so to speak. So when a government says lapses in procedure, the reality on the ground is obviously much, much more dire. And as of exactly in parallel, we have red tagging where, again, people are accused of being Maoists and either or communists and either arrested and or killed or there's complete impunity with which they're being treated. So definitely a huge crisis and an ongoing crisis. But like I said, the sign of hope is in the fact that organizations, activists continuously fighting and international solidarity also take place on this. You know, you're, you're talking about the Philippines, but you could just as well have been talking about Colombia or Honduras. Uh, you could just as well have been talking about the Gilgit Baltistan region of Pakistan. Sometimes good things happen. You know, we didn't mention it, but in December, uh, there was the release of the uh, life imprisoned uh, activist Baba Jan uh, was released in, in, in Gilgit, uh, has been going this last two weeks, traveling around Pakistan, speaking about um, various issues. A person of great dignity and, and composure, uh, Baba Jan. I think there are many Baba Jans sitting in prison. In India, of course, we have Sudha Bardwaj and, and you know, Anand Teltumbe and so on, been jailed for, I'm not sure what reason really, honestly. If we're, if we're honest and as journalists, if we read the record, it's not clear what's going on. Well, read the record. Um, I've been reading, uh, just released two days ago, the World Economic Forum. And, you know, I, I'm, I'll admit it publicly that I read the World Economic Forum documents. This is the group synonymous with the Davos conference. It's an interesting document. It's about the global gender gap. And what I found, I found two things of interest. One in general, one about India um, that I wanted to highlight. The thing in general is that they say as a consequence of the pandemic, um, whereas previously they had calculated it would take at the pace at which the gender gap was being closed. And, you know, they have a set of metrics and so on. At the pace at which the gender gap is being closed, they had previously said it will take 99.5 years to close the gender gap. That's about 100 years. Well, because of the pandemic, they now say at the pace at which the gender gap is being closed, it will take 135.6 years. So an entire generation has been lost in terms of what is known as gender parity as a consequence of the pandemic. And it's not really the pandemic's fault. It's a consequence of the way society is organized so that women conduct the majority of care work in the world. And because women conduct the majority of care work and during the lockdown, because of the lockdown, um, women have, have had to give up their jobs or cut back on their hours and so on. This has an impact on, on the wages women w make and so on. And, and, and as a consequence of that, really, it's a consequence of patriarchy that we're now going to see a an entire generation not be able to live with gender parity, you know, based on their report. Well, the point in India that I was very stunned with, and I want to mention this, I, I noted this down as I was reading, um, you know, you imagine India where science, in the world of science, a large number of women in science, in fact, 
the data shows that women in science are only 14.3% of total scientists. Only 14.3% of Indian scientists are women. That's extraordinary. And in the industries of fire, which is finance, insurance, and real estate, you know, these sort of the financialization industries, women in India only occupy 13.4% of those jobs. Um, th these are very high paying middle class jobs compared to other jobs. This is extraordinary. Um, India is in very bad shape in terms of at least the global gender gap as understood by the World Economic Forum. At Tricontinental, we've done a series of studies about this, including recently a dossier on care work. I ask you to go and take a look at that, but you don't really need to take a look at those studies. This is just something that you can see out the window. Or in fact, you can't see it out of the window. You have to see it inside the house uh, because it's a consequence of the lockdown and the way um, there's a patriarchal form of, of, of gender relations in the home. I'm, I'm bringing this up because somebody told me a little while ago that, look, this is a, a, a human interest story. It's not news. And I, I want to make this point, you know, that there is a way in which news is extraordinarily gendered, that um, the news becomes news of border conflicts and news becomes things about, you know, uh, strikes at workplaces and so on. But here we're talking about an enormous number of, of human beings who are working to socially reproduce homes. Why is uh, reports about their lives not news? Why is that a social story or human interest? I think we really need to think about the patriarchal nature of how we understand news. This is as much a news story as any story. And I think it's quite, uh, it's quite scandalous that an entire generation based on the World Economic Forum numbers is going to miss out on gender parity. I think that's that's a shame on, on humankind. Um, this is um, give the people what they want. We come to you every Friday at the same time, also as a podcast. Uh, we come to you from uh, People's Dispatch, Zoe and Prashant, amazing reporters, a great website. Make sure you go to it every day. I'm always surprised when I meet people who don't read People's Dispatch. I tell everybody it's got to be your first port of call in the morning. Uh, you can read it on your phone. The website is excellent. Um, give the people what they want also comes to you from Globetrotter. We're a syndication service. You can read us in about 200 publications. I hope you do. I hope you tell people about both People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. Zoe, Prashant, anything else you'd like to say? Watch out for more Ecuador stories. Looking forward to seeing everyone next week. Yeah. We'll see everybody next week. And be careful in Ecuador. Lenin Moreno has declared an emergency in a couple of, of districts. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what he's trying to do to the election, but I hope the people get to exercise their franchise. Um, you've been listening to give the people what they want from People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. See you next Friday.